and I'm glad you're here. I am so excited about today's message. I've been, I've had this circled on the calendar. I've been looking forward to this message. We have been going through John for over a year, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and today we arrive at his crucifixion. And um, I have so much content. I have cut so many pages. I'm gonna dispense with all introductions. We're gonna dive right in, and I'm gonna talk fast, so you might wanna come back next service because we have a lot to get to, a lot to get to, okay? I'm excited about what God's gonna do in us today. Um, Something curious happens as the Bible authors begin to speak of the time of Jesus' death, the day of Jesus' death, actually. The Bible gets strangely specific in a few ways. Let's go to Mark 15, 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour of sun would have been around 9 a.m. So Jesus was crucified at 9 in the morning. That's the third hour. Luke 23:44 tells us that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. From noon till three, we have this darkness upon the land while he's hanging there. Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And we know what he cried out that last moment because John 19, 30 says, it is finished. And then he died. Crucified around nine in the morning, Darkness fell on the land between noon and three, and around three in the afternoon, he cried, it is finished, and gave up his life. And we, I, I just want to stop, because remember, we always say, ask the questions. Put yourself in the story and ask the questions. Did you ever wonder why it gets so specific here? It seems to us, reading is just a, a normal detail, or just a detail added, but, but how often does the Bible just keep time with things? If you were an ancient... Um, Hebrew back in that time in the audience, you would see some of these times and light bulbs would begin going off in your head. These are indicators of something happening. And I want to credit Rabbi Ray Vanderlaan for this discovery and for illuminating uh, this teaching to me in some ways. And to find what these specific times mean, we have to start somewhere well before the cross. We're at the end of John, the end of Jesus' life, but to find out what's going on here with this third hour, ninth hour, we must go earlier. So we're going to turn to Genesis. In Genesis, God is looking for a person to start a new redemptive movement through. And now this is what God always does. Even today, he's looking for a people, a person, to start a new redemptive movement through them. And in Genesis, 15, in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, God comes to Abraham, a 75-year-old man, Never think it's too late. Whose wife is also old, and he says this to, to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples of earth will be blessed through you. Now when the God of you, the universe comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do all these things in you and through you. That's a banner day. That's a great day. Now, the promise to Abraham that all people would be blessed through him on the earth is not just an indication, not an indication of how great Abraham is, but that the Messiah will come through his line. That all people would be blessed by this, this work that God is going to do through Abraham. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus. So he promises the Messiah, a great nation, many blessings and many children. Now, if you're Abraham, your wife Sarah, this would have been mind-blowing. Life was tribal back then. The size of your family was your strength. The size of your family was an indicator of wealth. And Abraham and Sarah have absolutely zero sons and zero daughters. She couldn't bear children. But God gave them this promise. And guess what happens next? Guess what God does next? 
nothing. No pregnancies, no kids, time passes, they just keep getting older. Sometime later in Genesis 15, God appears again to Abraham to reiterate this blessing. Abraham is wondering where these children are. Like, where are they? I'm a great nation. I'm, uh, what's going on? He, he's old. His wife is beyond childbearing years. God, it's too late for your miracle. It's too late for that promise. He questions God. God, what can you even give me? We have no children, so anything you bless me with will just go to my servant because I have no kids. And that was the custom in the day. If there was no children, whatever the leader possessed would go to his head servant. It's hard to be a great nation. It's hard to, to be a, a great people when everything you have upon your death goes to your butler, you know? God's reply is interesting. He leads Abraham outside. He says, look at the stars. Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And remember, he's talking to an elderly man while his, his, his wife is past childbearing years. The next verse tells us a lot about Abraham and the depth of his faith. It says that Abraham believed God's promise. Abraham, old man, old wife, no children, hears God's voice, looks up at the stars, and an amazing show of faith that says that he believes. He takes God at his word. Abraham puts his faith in God's promises and shows that his faith in God's promises was greater than what he could see in his circumstances. There's a whole message I'm going to preach there. But God wasn't done. He says, God says, beyond this, beyond this, Abraham, I'm going to give you land. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you lots of land. And here Abraham decides to, to ask something of God. When he hears all these promises, he says, God, how can I be sure I'll truly get this? How can I be sure that this is going to happen? And that seems normal. Like, God, you're telling me this, but I need assurance. Where's the proof? How can I be certain that these promises will happen? Now, stepping out of the story for just one second, when someone promises something and you're asking for assurance, what do you need? What happens next? If you have two parties that want to assure each other, or if one party's making a promise that needs to be kept, what do they do? They sign a contract, don't they? The two signatures under all the stipulations, all the pages. But in Abraham's day, the contracts of his time were called covenants. A covenant is a promissory vow, a binding oath between two parties. A, co a covenant isn't just legal, it's relational. That's the difference between a contract and a covenant. A covenant um, could be just a—it's not just a piece of paper. It binds two people together. That's why marriage is intended to be a covenant, not a contract. So if this were modern times back in the story, God would tell Abraham, Abraham, go get a, get a lawyer. <laughs> get a pen. Get some paper. Get a notary. And if God said that, we would read it and go, I know exactly what God's doing. I know what happens when you get pen and paper and a lawyer and a notary. He's going to make a contract. But, but it's not modern day. So instead of pen and paper and a lawyer, God tells Abraham to gather what's needed for the covenant. Read this. God says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, a dove, and a young pigeon. Now again, if we're reading this, you're like, what? He asked for assurance? And God goes, have no fear, Abraham. The petting zoo is coming. Like, what are you doing here? He doesn't, we don't know what to make of this, but do you know who knows exactly what to make of it? Do you know who knows exactly what's happening here? Abraham. 
He's going to, we can tell by his actions that he knows exactly what God is asking him. And there are clues in the text that show us he's familiar with this request and what to do with it next. He goes and he gets the needed animals, and then without any further instruction from God, here's what he does. He cuts the three mammals in half and places them opposite each other. Then he places the birds at the bottom. What? Give me some assurance. Bring me some animals. Sure. Thunk. Abraham knew what God wanted him to do without any further instruction. Culturally, we don't understand this any more than Abraham would have understood what a notary is. But in the ancient Middle East, this is a common practice. I did a lot of research on, on, on blood covenants and, and, and all these kinds of things, and it is more common than we would ever believe. In fact, did you know the term cutting a deal comes from this? To cut a deal with somebody? Abraham asks for assurance. God tells him to get five animals. Abraham gets them, cuts them down in the middle. He arranges them in a certain way. What's wild here is there's still some places where they make covenants like this. And down through time in other cultures, a blood covenant is a common thing. For us, the idea of blood and animals for a covenant, doesn't it seem barbaric? Could you imagine, you know, you go buy a new property at RVR, and they're like, bring me a heifer, a ram, goat, two birds. <laughs> you know? We're like, what? It's so foreign. But don't lose sight of how ancient and how tribal this is. Again, the reason this was so common and so important is that there were no judges, no courts, no lawyers, no contract papers, no pens. There were covenants, binding oaths that had to be made and fulfilled. So in Abraham's time, you would, make, you, would make a, you would have a ceremony. And the ceremony would be very experiential, very intense and symbolic, and in some cultures, very painful, so that both parties would never forget the vows they made that day. I mean, we should update our marriage vows, you know? Have a little more experiential, a little more painful. There are different types of covenants, and I'm going to just go ahead and, and cut through all those and tell you the covenant that God is asking Abraham to prepare, to prepare is called the Vassal Suzerian Covenant. It's a covenant between one who is stronger and one who is weaker. God is obviously the superior. We have Abraham down here, the lesser. God brings children as numerous of the stars in his side of the deal. Abraham's generations, that through Abraham all nations will be blessed— God will bring the Messiah. That's what he's bringing to the contract. And, and what is Abraham bringing? His old self, his old wife, some sheep, some servants. God tells Abraham, let's make a covenant. Get the animals. And Abraham gets them and cuts them in half. And what he's doing here is he's preparing the paperwork. What's described here is these three animals cut in half and two birds not split. This is the type of covenant ceremony that would be arranged on an incline. The split animals opposite one another, as the Bible says, and you know what would happen? The blood of the split animals would flow down into the middle and meet. It would run down and form a path in the middle, and this is, this is the only picture we could find that even looks close to it. Um, it's called the blood path, and there you see some animals split in half, runs down the middle. See the birds at the bottom? For this ancient covenant, there were specific things that had to be done, not just for preparation, but for the sealing of the contract. Once it was all prepared, just right, it was time for each individual to sign. They had to sign this covenant. So first, what would happen first, is the superior 
of the Caesarean vassal contract, covenant would walk down the middle of that path, stamping their feet in the blood. This was a visual. It was a visceral, visceral symbol of what they were agreeing on. What this means is, the person walking would be saying, all that I have agreed to, I will make good on, as they stomp through it. And if not, what has happened to these animals? If I break this covenant, what's happened to these animals? May it happen to me. If I fail to do what I am covenanting here today with you, may my blood be shed. After the superior party goes through, then the secondary party would pass through the same path of blood, stamping their feet and their robes, stating, I also agree that I have all to all that I have promised. And may this happen. May this happen to me if I break covenant. May my blood be shed. This is how they would, this is how they do a covenant back then. I know it's so foreign, but did you know God mentions this in other places in the Bible? He mentions it in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, God is reprimanding his people. He made another covenant with them about a slavery and letting slaves go. And what I want you to see here is just recognize the blood path covenant language we'll see. Jeremiah 34, 18, God said, those who violated our covenant, it was relational, and did not fulfill the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two when they walked between its pieces. Do you see that this is common? God mentions it again. If you break the covenant, may what happens to me, may what happens to these animals happen to me. May my blood be shed if I break what we're, the covenant we're making today. So you see, they set up the blood path. They agreed to the terms. They each walked through declaring they will fulfill it. And if they fail, may it be my blood that is shed. So back to Abraham. He's, he's setting all this up. He's, he's setting up the paperwork, knowing that the moment is approaching where we'll, we'll, they will sign. They will walk the blood path. He will walk it as the secondary party. He's covenanting with God Almighty. But, but there's a huge issue. You see, we know what God's promising. He's made it very clear. Abraham, you'll be a great nation, a man of land and legacy. The world will be blessed through you. Even the Messiah will come through your line. But what is Abraham covenanting to? Well, Abraham, as the vassal of the Caesarean covenant, he must simply walk imperfect relationship with the superior. Not deviating, not betraying, not breaking confidence, and because it's a divine holy God, not sinning. To sin against the holy God would be breaking covenant, breaking covenant relationship. God is saying, I will give you all this, and all you have to do is live in perfect relationship with me, Abraham. Now, culturally, because this blessing was generational, Abraham would have known. Um, that this, this, this doesn't die with me. This is set up for my children, and my children's children, the nations. I must walk this and be in perfect relationship, but, but so, much, so must my relatives, my wife, my family, my children, my children's children, my children's children's children. And if at any point we break covenant, then may what is done to these animals be done to us. May my blood be shed if we break covenant. They must fulfill the vassal caesarean conditions, and if not, 
May their blood be shed. Put yourself in this for a moment. You're Abraham. God just promised you great wealth, great influence, great legacy. Unless you or your offspring misstep. Then the covenant will be forfeited. The curse will be upon you. You walk it perfectly and you're blessed. You slip up, death awaits you. What would you do? What would you do if in Abraham's shoes? Would you walk the blood path, sealing this covenant for yourself and your generations? On one hand, undeniable benefits and equally amazing, unattainable requirements. How would you feel? If you put yourself in this position, how would you feel about what God was laying before you? We know what Abraham felt because the text tells us through this process that after the splitting of the animals and creating a blood path, it says a terrifying darkness came down over him. The Hebrew figure of speech here, in English it would mean he was scared to death. What was he dreading? What was this, what was this darkness that came down over him? He had just completed the blood path, just set up the ceremony. All that's left is to walk and the darkness comes over him. Why? He gets all the blessings. This is a great thing. But I believe he knows he cannot uphold the vassal side of the covenant. If he walks it, if he walks this blood path, he is saying, he's vowing, if I break this covenant with you, God Almighty, if I break this, then what has happened to these animals may it happen to me. May my blood be shed. In verse 17, darkness falls. It's night. It's time to walk the blood path. Abraham waits for God. He waits for God to walk first. He's the suzerain. He's the superior. God will pass between the halves. And the, the text tells us that God does so in the form, it says, of a smoking fire pot. A smoking fire pot appears and passes down between the blood path. In Genesis 15, sealing the suzerian side of the covenant. Now, smoke is often used as a symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament, whether it's descending on Mount Sinai, whether it's filling and descending on the tabernacle, a pillar of cloud, and many other references. Smoke is often the image or representation of God's presence, his glory, his holiness. And here, this smoking fire pot walks down the blood path, covenanting. I will, I will uphold my side. I will bring the blessing. And if not... If I don't bless you, then what is done to these may be done to me. Abraham being there in the dark, it's still night. He's watching this smoke, swinging fire pot go, go through there, uh, vowing that, that he gets blessed, vowing that this will all happen. God passes through the blood path. Abraham, I will keep my side of the covenant. I will bless you. You need only be perfect. You need only keep perfect relationship with me. And now it's Abraham's turn. You can imagine some uh, fire lit to light the area, the crackle of the wood, the, the iron smell of the freshly slaughtered animals, the heaviness, the holiness of that moment. God's presence is there. What, what mood hung over Abraham? Was it still the dreaded, terrifying darkness? What was it? What was he thinking? How, was, was he thinking, how can I keep this? And even if I do make this, sure, even if I do walk it perfectly, let's say I walk this perfectly, what about my son, my daughter? If he, if, what about my grandson? What, what about them? But my God has asked this of me. I think Abraham would walk it. 
we learn about Abraham's life, we see he's willing to move ahead in faith in ways God asked him. I imagine him sitting there, standing there, his heart thudding, his breath quickening, trembling as he is about to walk the blood path with the Almighty God. And then, before he can do so, something happens. Before Abraham can walk through the blood path, saying, I will uphold my side of the covenant and walk in perfect relationship, the Bible says that after the smoking fire pot, when it's Abraham's turn to walk the covenant, a blazing torch then appeared, and it passed through the blood path on his behalf. Abraham watched, stunned, I'm sure, as a blazing torch of God's presence passed down through the halved animals. Abraham never walked the blood path of the covenant. He never walked through the covenant that God would bless him, that the Messiah would eventually come through his line, that he would just have to walk in perfect relationship. The implications of what just happened are shocking. God walked both sides of the vassal suzerian contract. He takes responsibility for both parts, for the blessing, and if it's broken, the curse. Both sides of accountability rest on him. Abraham, you cannot walk this. You cannot uphold your end of the covenant. I know you. But Abraham... I will walk for you. And should you or your offspring ever break covenant, then what has happened to these animals may happen to me. Abraham, you get the blessing, the nation, the land, the children, the Messiah through the descendants. And Abraham, if you or your generations fail to keep this side of the contract, then may my blood be shed. It was in that moment, in Genesis 15, I believe, Jesus, Jesus was sentenced to death. It wasn't when he stood before Pilate. It was right there in the binding blood path. Abraham is indeed blessed after this for generational. And because it's a generational covenant, it doesn't die when he passes. It continues. And about 400 years later, there was another prophet, Moses. And God told Moses, I don't want my people to forget the covenant. So build me a tabernacle. Build me an altar. Here's how to do it. And Leviticus 1, those five animals I had Abraham get for those covenant, those five animals, I want you to choose from those five, no others. Numbers 28. And twice a day, twice a day, every day, I want you to make an offering of that animal so that the people would be reminded in the morning and the evening, God, please do what you promised. Remember the covenant and forgive us. Moses do this twice a day, every day. Sabbath, holidays, every day. When should we do this, God? Exodus 29, twice a day, once in the morning, once later in the day. And so, for thousands of years, thousands of years, sacrifices were made of those five animals that God had told Abraham, shedding their blood. 
in the tabernacle that Moses used, in the first temple of Solomon, in the second temple that Jesus' time, at nine in the morning at the third hour, and the other at the ninth hour. Why does the Bible get so specific about Jesus' death in that day? See, what they would do is they would take one of those animals, they would sacrifice it, it, throw its blood on the altar in hope and remembrance. God, we have sinned. Forgive us the consequences of our transgressions. In your grace, in your grace, keep this covenant with us. So in the temple of Jesus' time, the sacrifice was quite a ceremony. We're going to move forward. In Jesus' era, it became this, this, there was a lot of pomp around it. Pomp is a word I've never used in my life. There were priests who had specific roles in making sure it went just right. One priest would watch the sun to mark the time. And if the sun was darkened by a dust storm or anything else, they had a sand timer. Another priest would stand ready, holding a shofar, the ancient Hebrew trumpet made from a ram's horn that was blasted to announce sacred moments. Around the ninth hour, the priest watching the time would wait until it was just right. I looked at my watch. He would watch until it was just right. And before the, he would, the, the priest would blast the shofar, he would wait for the signal from the timing priest. Interesting, at the pinnacle of the temple on the southwest side, archaeologists discovered a stone fragment that says, the place of trumpeting, or the place of blowing the shofar, up high, southwest side. So we know where the priest would be standing, high up so all would hear, would echo throughout the city. And since Exodus, the shofar had been the the horn of God's people, gathering to his presence, announcing war, announcing sacrifice. It was a sacred sacred element by this time, and it had a very discernible sound. And the priest up high would stand up there, and he would wait for his fellow priest to signal him. He would lift the shofar to his lips, and he would blast the trumpet. And standing up so high, the shofar would travel through the city. The people of Jerusalem, at hearing that, they would stand still. The city would grow quiet. Each person knowing that at that exact moment, another priest was shedding the blood of a sacrificial animal upon the altar. And the people in silent prayer, God, remember your covenant. Forgive us. The right hour, the shofar blast, the the shedding of blood. All in remembrance of the covenant that God had with his people. In accordance with the need for blood to atone for their sins. All in line with the blood path of the covenant that God had passed through. Forgive us. Remember your covenant. And this went on for 1,200 years a day. But I want to stop and look at one day. It was Passover. The city was packed. Of course it's packed. It's the holiest day. Pilgrims, millions perhaps, had had poured into the city. This, it was was Passover. It was significant. And on this day, the, the sacrifice 
the ceremony would be even more significant, more spectacular. The priest stood watching the sundial being, being darkened. He also had his sand timer to find the moment, waiting for the right moment, the right hour. And he made sure he looked at his, his fellow priest who stood on the wall, shofar in hand. He would be waiting for the signal while down below in the court was in front of a blazing altar. There was a priest who stood with a sacrificial blade, each doing what they'd been doing for generations. This has been passed down. The moment was growing close. The exact time was growing close. And when the ninth hour hit, the priest would have looked up at the other and nodded. And receiving the signal, he would then raise the shofar to his lips. And the third priest, knowing it was close, he would have prepared the sacrifice, preparing the moment. And at that exact time, out on a hill, only 300 yards from the altar, there were three men hanging on a cross on a hill called Golgotha. They had been nailed there at nine o'clock in the morning with the first sacrifice, the first blast of the horn, and they'd hung there for six hours. But back to the temple grounds where it's all happening. The time arrives. The signal is given, and as the priest blew the shofar marking the third hour that moment in the temple, the priest stepped forward and sacrificed the animal, knife in hand, shedding its blood. And as the blood from the sacrificial lamb bled out, and it breathed its last with a loud cry, a loud bleeding, outside on a hill, on that middle cross, the Son of God pulled himself up by his arms, and in a choking voice said, It is finished! Because God himself had walked both sides of the bloodbath. When we sinned, blood had to be shed. And so Jesus died at the ninth hour, fulfilling the ancient conditions of the covenant that we'd broken. And the blood of Jesus ran down that cross, and it ran into that ancient Middle Eastern soil. The very same soil where thousands of years before, the blood of the animals had made a path for Abraham to walk. The blood path that Abraham couldn't walk. And there on that cross, the shed blood of Jesus ran down that beam of wood, making a new path. A new blood path. We couldn't walk. Abraham couldn't walk. No human could walk the first one. So Jesus came, gave up his life to make a new way. Jesus walked it so that we could approach God. Jesus created this new blood path calling you to forgiveness and faith and new life based on his sacrifice alone. The covenant for your salvation paid in full by his blood. No other sacrifices needed. No penance needed. Paid in full. Jesus walked what we could not. He passed through what we would not, and he was perfect where we were not because he paid for our sins. And because he did that through faith in him, we can now have part of a new covenant, a new relationship with God Almighty because it is finished indeed. 
For generations, the ninth hour, the Passover lamb was slain in atonement for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And on that day, on the ninth hour, the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus, was slain once and for all. Amen indeed. Hallelujah. For the forgiveness for the covering of sins. And listen, you don't approach God with your works hoping that you've done enough. You can't do enough. Abraham couldn't do enough before, during, or after. He couldn't walk it. You can't walk a path good enough to earn your way anywhere. You can only walk the blood path that Jesus provided, that through his death and resurrection, we walk that path and we get forgiveness of our sins. We get peace in our present we get hope for our future. We get not only eternal life, you get life to the full now. Praise be to God. As we go into communion, two things I want to happen. As you hold the symbol of God's, of Jesus' sacrifice, I don't want you to look at it like you usually do. I want you to stop in reverence. That Jesus walked for you and for me what we could not walk on our own. That in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with humanity, knowing we would break it. And Jesus, knowing that he would come to fulfill it and provide a new way. I want you to thank Jesus for his sacrifice, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, and then orchard. I want to just challenge you in the spirit of all that Jesus has done to stand at some point and worship Jesus. Worship him. Because he's worthy. He's the lamb that was slain for our sins.